Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast. This is Anthropology 355, Bioarchaeology of Death for David Hopwood. My name is Claire Cunningham, and I'm again here virtually with my partner, Casey Moore. Hello! And for episode three today, we are going to be talking about 14th century remains in Norway. So to begin, we're going to be exploring the location of Trondheim, Norway, excuse my pronunciation, between the periods of 1175 and 1275. So with this research, research, during a wider investigation of the medieval and post-medieval population of Trondheim, three individuals were chosen and excavated for analysis. Having these individuals and their personal stories are actually quite rare, I learned, in this type of academic literature because within the 14th century, kings and queens and other members of privileged family um, have, of course, been discussed in detail on a personal level, like several kings and things like that and his descendants who ruled Norway until the early 14th century. However, finding these remains, I think, are very interesting and rare to kind of get the the in-depth analysis of um, because they didn't, they weren't well known in this society. The Library State Church was centrally located within the densely built area of medieval Trondheim and was one of 14 contemporary churches within the borders of the town's jurisdiction. The Library State Graveyard has archaeologically been divided into three burial phases. So it can be assumed that from the early 12th century, moving into the late 13th century, the church became a part of a Franciscan monastery, and that this was not a monastic church before this point, so that at the time of the individuals in question were buried, it is likely to have been a parish church. So, moving on to the data analysis of these individuals, what I found really interesting with this research is that when the skulls were assessed, they they were produced by the face lab at Liverpool John Moores University, and they began doing facial depictions. So, for those that don't know, the depiction of faces of people that have passed away or buried can be is a really useful tool for promoting recognition leading to forensic identification. So post-mortem facial depiction, which is also just a fancy word for reconstruction or approximation, is the interpretation of human remains in order to suggest the living appearance of an individual or how they looked like at the time that they were alive. This seems really fascinating to me, doing this kind of analysis of individuals that were buried. I think that this would be really, really cool to do this kinds of work. Um, there are a number of anatomical and anthropometrical standards that are employed during the facial depiction process, and these rely on the interpretation or measurement of skeletal structure to estimate the soft tissue features. So when you're analyzing the bone, you need a level of measurement in order to Again, when we're looking at the reconstruction, in order to look at the dimensions of where the soft tissue would fit into it. 
Another really important aspect of the context of these graveyards and the individuals that were excavated are that they were socially stratified. So the upper layers of society were being buried close to the church and the people pertaining to the opposite end of the social hierarchy were being buried close to the graveyard and in turn farther away from the church. So the socially stratified graveyard also has a lot to do and supports the osteoarchaeological record and analysis that was being taken place. So the three individuals that were discussed in this research were all buried centrally in the graveyard. Moving on to genetic sexing or gender plex analysis, it was confirmed that that this individual, the first one, was a woman, and it was also clear that she died when she was in her early 20s, based on carbon dating. Her living stature has been estimated on the basis of 401 millimeters maximum length to the left femur in her leg, indicating that she stood between 150.9 centimeters and 159.9 centimeters tall during her adult life. Again, what is interesting to see further is that there's no visible evidence of trauma or pathology on the skeleton. The only potential point of interest is that she lost her left mandibular second premolar in her dental record. So with that initial information, what kind of conclusions or interpretations can we come from or come to, pardon me? Um, There is no kind of record. I mean, it is... a 14th century medieval town in Norway and I guess a lot of biases and stereotypes about medieval is that there were kings and knights and queens and things like that. There aren't any evidence or any research done that this woman had a place among that. She doesn't have any trauma or pathology on the skeleton. Pathology meaning she could have lived a relatively healthy life without any major diseases or things like that, no trauma, she wasn't injured or harmed in her life. The absence of the left mandibular second premolar doesn't really give us a lot of information to look at and to tell about perhaps her diet or her health at the time, being that it's only one tooth missing. Um, but it is interesting to to keep and keep in mind. The second individual that we are going to be looking at out of the three has also been determined to be female through morphological examination. A conclusion recently confirmed by, again, genetic sexing. It has been estimated that this woman was slightly older at her time of death and she, that she would have not lived long past her mid-twenties. Whereas the third individual of this research was determined by morphological examination to be male and died in his late 20s or early 30s. This person had undergone a surgical procedure, which can be seen by the trepanation in the posterior part of the right parietal bone. So trepanning or trepanation is also known as making a burr hole, which is a a surgical invention in which a hole is drilled or scraped into the human skull. 
This is really interesting information to take into account based on the morphological examination of this individual because it allows us to not only differentiate this individual from the other three individuals that didn't show this type of morphological change or extremity in their skeleton, so we don't know the meaning behind the purpose of the surgical process nor do we know the level of which it was taken to, into account or if this individual died post this surgery because of this surgery they were trying to save his life because of this surgery all of those kind of aspects are going to be unknown however the inter- interpretation can be you know we can come to one that suggests that he had a health com- complication to begin with hence needing some form of surgery and with that information we can kind of look at okay maybe he wasn't a healthy individual to begin with because of his social hierarchy because he was buried far away from the church maybe that can tell us about the status he obtained in his life the food he was eating normal things like that that we always take into account when talking about excavated individuals this kind of gives a big red flag as to where the person sat on the social scale. So continuing on with the research, the birthplace of this male puts him among the majority of the population in the medieval Trondheim as he was born outside of the town. And if we reference this to the history of Trondheim in Norway, it was one of the metropoles of the Papel Church and was a notable point in long-distance routes meaning that people had been traveling these routes for a series of reasons, a variety of reasons, whether they were shorter distances or large stretches throughout Europe, but meaning that this town would have been attracting people either for seeking work or for religion or craftsmen or something like that, but it was a popular destination. So with this information, it can lead us to believe that our male individual being born outside the town and also buried outside the town, however closer, which as we know from our previous discussion at the beginning of this episode, is that the individuals that were being buried close to the church had a higher society status layer within the population rather than people with a lower status layer were buried far away from the church in the graveyard. So based on this birthplace of the individual being outside of the town, that can give us a lot of information and interpretations about his place within society being that he was buried so far away. Either he could have been an immigrant or someone that was migrating into the area, traveling, that can tell us about mobility It can also tell us about his social status and where he was placed within the population, again linking it back to the surgery that can be seen on his excavated skeleton, what that tells us about who this person was. So to conclude, the three individuals that were presented in this article are a large representation of this population and give a really good insight into one of the major towns in medieval Norway. 
Um, it's fair to assume that they are representatives of a rather heterogeneous population. Um, for myself, I come to the conclusion of a potential for a lot of migration based on the spatial aspect of the burials and the landscape archaeology because our last male individual was buried not only far from the church but also outside of the town I think can give us a lot of information on who the person was and whether they had ancestry within Norway or they were traveling from another place. Casey kind of my question for you is do you think that there's a significance of those phases of burials that we saw and what conclusions do you come to based on that some conclusions that i come to i it makes me wonder about like what they ate what they did kind of stuff like that because if you look at the pathological remarks like there are one pathological remarks on the younger woman where in which she lost her um, molar, whereas the other woman has no other pathological remarks. And I just find it interesting how um, the male is the only one who actually has like surgical, um, surgical remarks. And I'd also like to bring up the fact that they have like um, no grave goods present, which I think is a really interesting thing because um usually grave goods point to the kind of person they were what what kind of um like things they were or things that they uh like to do according to the people who are still alive so what does that say about their health or their status what do you think claire i think what is most interesting to me is the location of the burials it also makes me think about the significance of the church and the religion that we can see through this research in the medieval time of Norway. Obviously, people who were buried close to the church could have been active participants of of said church or active participants in the religious world of the church and things like that. Perhaps not only if you were of a lesser social status were you buried away, but also perhaps if you weren't a religious participant or you weren't loyal to the church or you had done some indiscretion or something like that perhaps you know our male individual that was buried so far away could have been involved in something like that like you mentioned about the lack of grave goods i think also is a contributing factor about the social status knowing in the medieval 14th century with the presence of kings and queens and that kind of royalty i think that the lack of grave goods for really all three of these individuals, um, especially our male, can give a lot of insight into their social status and their hierarchical role. We can also kind of look at the interpretation of gender roles in this, looking at, like what you said, that both females had relatively low morphological or pathological changes, relatively low trauma, apart from the left mandibular second premolar missing, that could simply be, uh, you know, not really a sign of age because she was in her early 20s, but it could have been a sign of of poor diet or something like that, but relatively a lot less traumatic than this male with the hole in his head, so to speak. 
whether the role of gender could have played into it, whether these were the women were wives of somebody else in a higher family or a higher position in the society. Perhaps the male was the exact opposite, and that's why he was buried so far away. So another question that I want to ask and discuss is, again, the use of migration that can be seen here throughout this town of Norway and also represented in the burials. Based on this research, it's fair to assume that in general, European towns and cities did like provide a lot of op- opportunities of employment and, you know, farmers from the countryside wanting to come in and things like that. So the attraction of the workforce in rural medieval Norway would have been apparent in this time. And when we're looking at our individual with the hole in his head, this surgical procedure could have been treated for his illness and then might have been a motivation to move after he was treated. Or perhaps he got the initial surgery after migrating to this town. There's lots of different explanations that could be provided for for the level of migration and why mobility was such a key factor in this research in its, in its particular. And because this entirety of these episodes are surrounding the topic of treatment of the dead and why these types of burials were used the most important aspect for this research for me is the ways in which these individuals were buried and why they were chosen to be buried in a certain place like we've seen in the distance to the church and the distance outside the town things like that like all of these reasons are from the living because the living have to bury the dead so why do people choose to do it this way what significance did it mean to them and in order to come to kind of an answer to these questions is based on the landscape archaeology and the spatial archaeology and how these people utilized their environment how they utilized the space around them in order to achieve the kind of treatment of dead that they wanted at this time. So to continue talking about this specific topic, I want to move on to another set of research and another set of data that still remains in Norway. However, it's going to be talking about Viking remains. So I chose this one to explore because we can also compare and contrast this to our episode number one when we talked about Vikings in Sweden. The fact that there was research done with Vikings in Norway, we can, again, use our interpretations of spatial and landscape archaeology that Sweden and Norway are both Nordic, Scandinavian countries, their geography, their climate can be quite similar. And perhaps, again, when we look at the remains, we can get an insight into were their social hierarchies similar, were their were the spatial relationships similar? Were the status similar? Were the perhaps trauma or pathology similar? Looking at this can give us a lot of that information. So this burial site is situated close to a settlement area which exhibits traces of contemporary Argoranian activity, which as a reminder is the control and operation of a 
biological cycle involving vegetable or animal matter. So in simplistic terms, it's the activities that were carried out by a farmer in connection with the production or burial of the certain type of matter. So parts of the burial site at Flakstad Vicaraj, excuse my pronunciation, were excavated in the period of 1980 to 1983. Ten individuals presented were all dated to the Viking Age based on their burial artifacts, which we'll discuss. The burial artifacts consisted of weapons, comb, beads, garment accessories, and animal bones that all represented different levels of social wealth. So before we go forward, we can already see a large connection to the Viking Burka Sweden episode where most prominently this research is going to look at the grave goods and how that has such a strong influence on how these remains are going to be discussed and interpreted. So the Viking Age, to give more of a background, is characterized by a striking heterogeneity in burial customs with regard to burial form and grave artifacts and treatment of the body. So graves with two or more individuals, which we'll be soon to see, occur quite frequently throughout the Viking Age and all over the Viking world. The choice to bury, bury individuals together is hardly coincidental, but rather a deliberate action based on specific relationships between these individuals. So these relationships could be allegatarian, reflecting family members, or they could be closely connected. Alternatively, the choice could involve human sacrifice or in other ways, persons of different social rank where one or more persons were intended to accompany the main burial. For example, such as like a servant to a higher prestige individual, something along the lines like that. So the first one we're going to look at, the skeletons in double and triple graves were buried in shallow graves that were close to the surface and partly disturbed by agricultural activity. So the poor contextual information available at Flaxstad was supplemented by the bioarchaeology analysis, strengthening both interpretation of multiple burials and differential treatment of individuals in multiple burials as intentional, which is not just an effect of taphonomic processes. Um, and to remind ourselves, taphonomy is the study of the process in which the organism between death and fossilization and how this process might include breakage or disarticulation could be due to weathering, scavenging, trampling, transportation, could be due to water or environment, cold, hot, any kind of things like that that can affect the organism and how they decompose. So with that information, we can take that into account that a lot of the features that we're going to see on these individuals did come from farming activity and did come from processes that happened after the individuals had passed away. However, the second, I think, most important aspect about this research, other than the grave goods, is how these individuals were buried in the ground. For instance... At Flagstad, the four accompanying individuals presumed the presence of slaves based on the number of factors such as maltreatment of the body, decapitation, binding of hands and feet, and undistribution of grave goods. So with this knowledge, the burial context from Flagstad is limited and the material makes 
archaeologists question and want to further investigate to the study of these social relationships that are presented through the kinds of burials. So whether there was a master and a slave, or perhaps another type of relationship where one individual was treated differently with a higher social regard in their treatment of their death and accompanied with a lesser treated individual. Another thing I want to talk about and also want to make note of is that the isotopic values of these headless individuals aren't to be differed from the values of those buried in single burials, individuals buried by themselves without accompanying anybody or being accompanied by, by anybody. There is still going to be a level of analysis and interpretation with the single and the double burials because of their decapitation treatment that we're going to analyze that through their social status. So there's different level of aspects, one of them being decapitated, the second one of them being either accompanied with someone or without. So what the researchers came up with was that they looked at the society as a whole and how most of the daily activities were dedicated to the preparation and acquirement of food. So where food shortage and harsh winters are usually involved in the Viking environment, especially in Norway, it was assumed to be a kind of constant threat and would seem likely that a different diet would be detectable in people of low social standing compared to the common population. So people that were able to have a more rich diet of produce and meat and things like that, whereas people with a low social status would have bread or grains or things like that. Again, I there's not a lot of evidence of what types of food would be associated with the higher status could be the opposite. However, it it still comes to the same conclusion that a poorer diet would reflect a poorer social status, whereas a higher diet would reflect a higher social status. What is really interesting about this research is that the data in this study shows the complete opposite. So indications that the decapitated and or headless people in multiple graves might represent a low status member of a population, their diet actually ended up being equivalent to those that were buried also in single burials. So the persons in single burials were all buried in a seemingly respectful way and accompanied by grave goods pardon me, and gifts that were interpreted as representations of the free population. So with that being said, if we've ruled out the fact that the headless individuals were of lesser status than the non-headless individuals or if they were lesser status because they were in a single burial rather than in a multiple burial, we can remove that from the analysis as well as that the diet they had doesn't come to an equal re or a accurate representation of their social status, then it begs the question, why were some people chosen to be headless and why were some people chosen not to be? Why were some people chosen to be buried with other people and some not to be? The main topic of this research is that that there could have been slaves used in Viking Norway, whether just as slaves to a, a higher social status person or were there burial gifts 
to the person that was originally buried. Were they buried with another person, that being a slave, as a type of funerary gift, a type of send-off that they the living wanted them to be buried together? Was it used for a type of afterlife journey or support that the individual had to have been buried with their slave in order to gain access to a type of afterlife, a heaven, or something like that. So with all this information, it speaks a lot about the processes and the methods used by the living. All of these burials had a lot of intent placed within them, so there was a lot of decisions being made, and that greatly represents what kind of people were living in this area and how the society functioned as a whole. Further information of the crania and postcranial bones that were isotope analyzed um, concluded that the individuals didn't come from an ancestral line, so we can't assume that the both individuals buried in the multiple graves were of a family relationship. It then kind of confirms that there was a master and slave dynamic because they didn't have any DNA or postcranial matches from the two individuals. However, burials with three or more individuals have a distinct special social status because it's emphasized not only by their diet but also by the lack of high status artifacts buried with them. So this could indicate that the individuals were not necessarily wealthy but special in another sense. This also shows that the individuals that were buried intact opposed to with another person or decapitated, shows they're kind of belonging to a separate social strata and treatment that's different than others in death, as well as this could have been represented in their life as well due to the diet and the poor contextual information from how they were buried. So to conclude and kind of wrap up this research from Flagstad, it's revealed some really interesting patterns and methods that were used. So the individuals in multiple burials show very much an intentionally placed placement um, of the same burial and given the pattern in which only one person intact in each burial, um, whereas persons sharing a grave had distinctly different diets during their lifetime and it wasn't likely that they shared either an ancestral kinship, a maternal kinship, or anything like that. So we can kind of make the observation that the persons who were buried headless may have been slaves accompanying a higher ranking person, whether it was a master, whether it was something of another social occupation. This is the conclusion or the interpretation that corresponds with how the burials and remains were accompanied and depicted. So my first question for this research is going to be the reason for decapitation why if if we're basing off of the interpretation that there was a relationship of master and slave with the people that they were buried together why why was there the trauma of decapitation what significance does that hold so to answer this question there is i don't have a particular like one final concluding sentence it's just kind of about discussing what possible means there were for decapitation i want to start out with noting that these were 
labeled Viking remains and in a kind of Viking world. So it, I want to think back to our first episode looking at Vikings in Sweden. They weren't any, I mean, it was just the one research that we covered. There could be others, but we didn't see any kind of pattern in how Viking remains were seen in Sweden as to Viking remains that were seen in Norway. So does that pose the question that is the beheading a particular method used in Norway? Or does it have a meaning entirely of its own? Could it have been possible that beheading was used as a method to kill an individual? Was decapitation done after the person had already been deceased? Was was it used as a sacrificial type of method? And if that could have been true, where is the other remains? Because in these particular burials in Norway, they didn't have a head. We just had the body. So that means the head must have been deposited or gotten rid of or used or something like that in another fashion because they weren't in those exact burials. So that can also kind of give us an idea of were the heads used for a ritual, a belief, a something like that? Were they just deposited immediately after? Were they sent off in the ocean or something like that in a way that has nothing to do with their funerary remains? There's a lot of explanations that could be given for that. Casey, what do you think? I do agree with everything that you just said, because honestly, it is up to us to interpret these remains. The fact that they were decapitated, the fact that they had only the body with them, rather the head, that tells us only part of the story. I find that we are missing so much, but... I guess with it, we are gaining a little bit of knowledge about how they treated their dead. It could have been, like you said, a ritualistic or it could have been, you know, sacrificial. It could have been, you know, was it done before or after their death? Was that how they died? It's kind of, we have all these questions but no answers. So I find it's just kind of, this site is more interesting. The fact that they only are a body. There's no head, which I just think is unique and rare. My next question is kind of a branch from the first question, but it's to acknowledge that within this study, there has been these interpretations and correspondence from other Norse world burials that resemble the same features where decapitated or headless people were disposed as great gifts or goods. So what I want to talk about is why is this Viking culture been using this kind of dismemberment of the body? Does it have anything to do with the Scandinavian geographical area location? Does it have something to do with, is it perhaps a tradition or ritual that has been embedded in the Viking culture for thousands of years? Or has it come through with migration and mobility of people frequently coming in and out of the area? Did it somehow kind of be created in a sense that when masters and slaves became a crucial part of their societal structure, did then that tradition kind of come from that or had it already been embedded in their beliefs? Again, this question isn't going to have a black and white answer or a pinpoint answer. It's just something that I, I find really fascinating and I want to think about. And based on lots of other research that I've previously done within my anthropology degree, I, I know that Vikings do have really particular and interesting burials of of them going off into the canoe in the ocean and then lighting an arrow on fire and shooting at it. So seeing this kind of 
treatment of the dead with the with the decapitation really sparks really sparks a particular and precise treatment of the dead that hasn't been seen in a lot of other populations. Casey, what do you think? I personally agree with everything that you said. There is no black and white answer for this at all. The fact that these Vikings had this these rich burials, these burials were in which they're so unique and so rare, these disortments and um, changes to the bodies that they made before, maybe after death, who knows? It changes the way we think about their lifestyle. It changes the way we think about how they treated their be- their dead. Did that person not get treated well in that group, or did they get? Did they have higher higher hierarchy? Who knows? Honestly, I think when it comes down to it, it's just that there's a lot of evidence where in which it goes missing, and the fact that it goes missing is just hard. The fact that we don't have a head is just. It's lacking so much, but at the same time, there is still evidence there where in which that we can gain an idea or gain uh, about their lives. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you guys enjoyed exploring 14th century Norway with us. Hopefully it sparked your imagination to kind of continue these conversations with people around you. It's really interesting stuff, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks!